This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner, and I am so honored to share with you these inspirational stories of one of America's greatest heroes, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, before we get started, just reflecting on the life and the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And for me, uh, being that generation, Generation X, uh, born, probably, you know, historians would say at the end of that particular phase of the civil rights movement, I was born in the late 60s. Um, to hear my father and when my mother was alive, you know, tell stories about their lives and the impact because they were coming of age, you know, during that time, um, just reflecting on my generation and the debt that we owe to the civil rights generation. And many, uh, many people in the civil rights generation are still alive today. So this is not ancient history. The fact that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream, the fact that he was so much ahead of his time. Sometimes when we talk about Dr. King, at least for the larger uh, society and politicians in particular, who want to whitewash the legacy of Dr. King. Dr. King was very much a radical. He was very much ahead of his time. And especially, especially when he talked about militarism and poverty and racism and materialism, he went against the norms that were acceptable. And, you know, in my college years, when I found out, because it wasn't until I got to college that I was able to analyze and dissect the other side of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that in fact, he was not popular at the time that he lived, not even among the majority of African-American people, and certainly not the majority of white people. His life was always on the line and his family's life was always on the line, that kind of sacrifice that him and his contemporaries made to create an America, in the words of Congresswoman Barbara Jordan, that, that, that to create a world as good as his promise, you know, that is something that will always, always uh, leave a mark on me. And then on a personal note, one of my older cousins, and she tells me this story every year, and I just... You know, my my father's family is from Gainesville, Georgia, and my father 
He's 74 years old right now. But when he was a young boy, he got sick. And some people might not necessarily remember, Black folks could travel, but Black people could not stay in the fancy hotels. There's this thing called the Green Book. And that book was used to show and tell African-American people where they could stay uh, along their travel. It's hard for us in the 21st century to wrap our mind around the fact that Black people couldn't just go to a Hilton or Sheraton or whatever the names of the hotels were at that time. They had to find refuge along the way. But my father got sick and on their way to get my dad to the doctor, my father was taken in by the King family. So my grandmother, Johnny Mae Hudson, was a friend of Mrs. Coretta Scott King. I'm sure you could feel the smile on my face because just to know that nugget of history, that there is even the smallest connection to the King family, it it makes my heart almost leap out of my chest. And you know what else it says about the love, just the love, because my family, just an average family, but it shows the love and the hospitality of the King family. And I am quite sure that they have done things like that for so many people um, that we just don't hear about because, you know, Johnny Mae Hudson, uh, you know, she she wasn't a national figure. She was just a woman of the South, uh, loved her son and her family. And that hospitality show by the King family means so much to me. So not only do I see the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Mrs. Coretta Scott King, uh, from a historic perspective, I also have a personal story to tell about how they touched our family, and probably without that hospitality, who knows what would have happened to my dad. So just so much love and so much gratitude uh, to the King family. So we are going to look at the people who influenced Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s calling the most. A little later in the show, we will hear about the role of Mahatma Gandhi and King's advocacy of nonviolent protests here in the United States. But first, we are going to focus on the two people who arguably had the largest influence in King's life, his parents, Martin Luther King Sr. and Alberta Williams King. Joining us now to talk about Reverend and Mrs. King Sr. is Dr. Claiborne Carson, the former director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. Dr. Carson is now the director of the World House Project at Stanford. The World House Project works to realize Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of the world as a large house in which, quote, we must learn somehow to live with each other in peace. Dr. Carson is also the author and editor of numerous books on civil rights and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Too many to name here. Dr. Carson, welcome. Good to talk to you. And I'm glad we're bringing attention to these uh, important individuals. And I would add to that uh, uh, King's grandfather, uh, A.D. Williams, uh, who was also a civil rights leader as well as a, a minister. Absolutely. Well, yeah, let's definitely discuss that. And it, I mean, it seems as though the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. could not escape his destiny if he tried to. It is very much in his in his DNA. So I want to start with a letter I found in your archives that Dr. King Jr. wrote to his father when MLK was a young boy. Uh, in that letter, he thanked his father for a birthday present he received while his father was traveling. 
It struck me that as an accomplished preacher and a civil rights leader in his own right, Martin Luther King Sr. must have spent a fair amount of time traveling for work and away from his family a lot. How do you think that impacted Dr. King Jr. growing up, Dr. Carson? Well, I think he took a great deal of pride in his uh, father's willingness to stand up to racism, to uh, demand that people treat him as, as a man, as a, as a leader. Um, he was not afraid to uh, stage marches to bring about desegregation in Atlanta. And uh, I think the only thing that was maybe a worry in, in um, Junior's, uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s life is he worried about uh, the safety of his father. Uh, because uh, obviously there was that possibility that he would be attacked uh, violently by by racists. Absolutely, and and certainly uh, Dr. King Jr. experienced that himself. So that kind of legacy of both fighting for justice and really putting your body, literally your body and that of your family, uh, on the line, was very real. And you know, as as we talk about you know the influence of uh, Reverend King Jr.'s father a lot of time we miss the impact that his mother had on his life. So I want to talk about uh, Alberta King, uh, Mrs. King, Mama King, we'll call her. And is it fair to say that she had a significant impact on young Martin's development growing up? And and, and in this question, Dr. Carson, I want to weave in his maternal grandfather, uh, A.D. Williams. Well, I, I think both, all of them had an influence on, on his life. And uh, I think he paid more attention to the influence of his father because his father was a minister. Uh, but uh, he he also wrote letters to his mother, and uh, and I think she was a, a powerful force within the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Um, I don't think uh, her husband would have been selected at a young age to replace uh, her father um, as minister of the church if not for her influence. Um, you know, Mark, people forget that uh, King Senior um, came to an already well-established church. Uh, where A.D. Williams had been the leader almost since its founding. Yeah, and that was Ebenezer. Is that right, uh, Dr. Carson? That was Ebenezer? Ebenezer Baptist Church, yes. And um, and so that church was already well-established by the time that A.D. Williams came to Atlanta in um, the period of World War One, And uh, he started courting Alberta. And uh, eventually uh, he, he overcame the doubts of um her parents, who thought that you know this was a, a person who had just arrived in um, Atlanta, he was not well educated, um, but I think A.D. Williams sensed in in uh, King Senior that he had those same qualities that uh, he had had because both of them were were migrants to Atlanta who arrived with nothing. We'll have more with Dr. Claiborne Carson on the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue our conversation with Dr. Claiborne Carson talking about Reverend and Mrs. Martin Luther King Sr. King Sr. went to Morehouse um, already a grown man. He had only had a grammar school education. He uh, basically put himself through college and graduated. And only then A.D. Williams thought, thought that he was sufficiently educated to take over 
uh, a major church on Auburn Avenue. Yeah, I mean, that is very significant, especially uh, during that time. And we talk a lot about the non-traditional college student, even to this day. But to be able to surmount that kind of hurdle and go back and and come out uh, even stronger. And it seems like uh, Reverend A.D. Williams certainly had some discernment in that he saw uh, some strong qualities in uh, King Sr. Uh, going back to uh, Alberta, King, what? how significant do you think her upbringing in the church, you know, being the daughter uh, of a preacher, was to uh, what she imparted into into her son? Well, I, I think that, first of all, she the, the role she played in terms of musical director for the church, um, that she was a, uh, a person who was uh, more well-educated, actually, than her husband. Um, that's one of the, the patterns is that the kings, I think, married well. <laughs> they married women. Uh, A.D. Williams uh, married a woman who was more well-educated than he was. Um, the same was true of, of King Sr., who married um, Alberta, and uh, she was uh, a graduate at Spelman, of Spelman College. Uh, so... So I think they were all fortunate, and I would I would apply that to um, Martin Luther King's Jr. You know, because uh, certainly Coretta Scott King was uh, also going to a graduate school uh, in her case, the uh, New England Conservatory of Music, when uh, she met um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, in Boston. So all of them uh, chose women who were uh, very well educated. Um, very confident. Um, in Coretta's case, uh, more politically experienced than Martin was at the time they met. Uh, she had already been to a, a political convention, um, the Progressive Party convention in 1948, at a time when Martin Luther King Jr. had not even voted. So, uh, so I think you, you see a pattern there that uh, the, the women uh, they might have played a a you know, more traditional role in, in terms of staying at home, taking care of the kids, but they were um, at least as well educated as, as their husbands. Absolutely. And and then, you know, the era that they were in as women, uh, certainly women were still trying to make many breakthroughs and oftentimes, which I'm so glad that we are exploring the lives of both Alberta King and Coretta Scott King. And uh, hopefully maybe in another segment, we can go deeper, but women are often left out of the narrative and especially black women. So uh, I'm not certainly not surprised. And I'm sure people joining us on this journey won't be surprised uh, to know that a lot of their attributes and accomplishments were not and still to this day are not necessarily talked about as deeply as we talk about the men. So Dr. Carson, I'm so glad we're dipping in there just a little bit. Uh, You know, I only learned recently that both Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr were originally named Michael, and their names legally changed to Martin. How and why did that come about? I mean, that, that's blowing my mind right now, Doc. Well, I think part of it is when you think about the, um, the role of, um, as religious leaders, and, um, and, and I think Martin Luther um, you know, obviously was an important figure in, in Protestant development of the Protestant Church. Um, and uh, King Sr. went to Berlin to help commemorate the uh, 100th anniversary of the, of the uh, Baptist Church. 
and uh, at least the official Baptist church. And he um, may well have come back with the idea that uh, Michael King compared to Martin Luther King, um, Martin Luther King was a much more prestigious name. And so he uh, changed his name and the name of his son uh, during the 1930s after returning from that trip. My goodness. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I mean, this is going, this is a stunning revelation. I'm sure to uh, to many people, it's one of those nuggets uh, that uh, I don't I don't think many folks know about. And uh, so, thanks for sharing that with us. You know, Martin Luther King Sr. was certainly an accomplished civil rights leader whose legacy was overshadowed by the outside success of his son. Can you talk to us a little bit more uh, in, in layers, layering on uh, the work of MLK? senior, the work that he did to really prepare the way in many ways, um, not just for his son, but for many of the freedom fighters to come after him. Well, I think when you look at A.D. Williams, uh, Martin Luther King Sr., and Martin Luther King Jr., and the fact that all of them were civil rights leaders, um, A.D. Williams arranged to have the national meeting of the uh, NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, held in Atlanta, which was a major breakthrough at that time for a, a civil rights organization to meet in the South. Um, and uh, that was largely the work of, of A.D. Williams. So um, by the time we get to King Sr. and he's leading um, um, marches in the 1930s and, and kind of mobilizing his church and, and mobilizing other ministers uh, to to speak out against uh, segregation and and to uh, and and to take that leading role in formulating a, a movement um, for civil rights. Uh, so, um, so I think when you get to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, he kind of took it to the next level, and uh, and I think that he came of age at a different time when uh, the marching wasn't just in Atlanta and places like that, but it was spreading throughout the South. And so his role was much broader um, through the creation of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, that, of course, became a, a major vehicle for uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 50s. So, uh, so I think each of them built on the successes of, the, of their ancestors um, and their you know, parent and grandparent in the, in the case of Martin Luther King Jr. He, uh, he, he would have acknowledged that and, and uh, understood that, uh, you know, Ebenezer Baptist Church, when you go to it today, um, you see that, uh, you know, I, uh, whenever I go and visit the church uh, on a Sunday, I, I see uh, King's sister sitting in the front row of that church. So you have a single church that has been there in that spot for over 100 years. And during all that hundred years, uh, King and his um, father and grandfather have played major roles in it. And you know, movements for justice are exactly flow exactly the way that you just described them, Dr. Carson. It really is a building on, a layering, if you will. I think sometimes when we talk about individuals, we forget that there was a beginning to that individual and probably an individual, several individuals before them, whether they were related to them or not, who were building, uh, you know, 
going on that on that same journey. And especially when it's justice, it's never one individual. It's a continuum. And uh, really, as you are telling the story about the King family and the Williams family, I, I see continuum, you know, in, in my mind's eye and that each person was destined to do what they did, uh, building on the a foundation for the next person to step on and the next and the next, which is absolutely a beautiful thing. You know, I want to mention a couple of stories that Dr. King Jr. Uh, recounted about his father, and I want to get your reaction to them. Uh, the father and son were in a shoe shop to buy shoes for young Martin, seated in chairs by the front door. Then the white clerk asked them to move to seats in the back of the store. What happened then and what impact do you think that had on five-year-old Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.? Well, he recalled uh, his father uh, walking out of the store and he said that was the angriest I had ever seen him. Yes. Um, That he just was not willing to accept uh, um, lesser treatment because of his race. And uh, and, I think... um, King Jr. was just a child at that time, but uh, you know it was it made an impression on him. You know, just as the time when uh, a policeman stopped his father for um, uh, you know maybe a uh, minor traffic violation of some sort, um, and he insisted that the police officer treat him and um, uh, call him by his formal name, and uh, and. You know, seeing for young Martin, seeing that courage, you know, at that time, that probably could have gotten you killed if, if you ran into the wrong, wrong policeman. Yeah, even today, too, Dr. Carson. Yeah. Even today. <laughs> even today. Yeah. Martin Luther King learned a lot from his father about the courage that it takes to be a civil rights leader. And, uh, and that was an important lesson. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Dr. Claiborne Carson on the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue our conversation with Dr. Claiborne Carson talking about Reverend and Mrs. Martin Luther King Sr. And I want to drill down just a little deeper on something you just said, which is Daddy King was not willing to accept lesser treatment. And as we, you know, every year, certainly as we get closer and closer to the King holiday, there's this reflection and People do it as individuals. We do it as a collective, especially, you know, because we do have the King holiday, which came with a fight. Uh, I know for some people can't even imagine that it it took uh, it was a Herculean task to even get the King holiday. And sometimes we forget that, too. But the willingness to not accept lesser treatment. If we look at Dr. Uh, Daddy King's courage to not accept that treatment and he 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 modeled that for his son. And what is happening today, Dr. Carson, do you see some similarities between the lessons that Daddy King was uh, teaching his son through his actions and his acts of courage to some challenges and struggles that African-Americans are enduring to this day in the 21st century? Yes, and I think that that's one of the most important lessons that we can hand down to the future generation is that 
these models of heroic acts. You know, they might have been simple, like walking out of a store. But uh, you can imagine that if you see people behaving with that expectation that they are equal to anyone else, then it's, it's, it's an important message to send to uh, the next generation. So Reverend Dr. King Jr. certainly emulated his father, but he wasn't a clone. You know, they weren't, he, he wasn't his clone. Can you share a few issues that uh, senior and junior did not agree, that they differed? Oh, of, of course. You know, <laughs> I think uh, that's always going to be the case with uh, a, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, you know, differed on many issues. I think he was much more militant than his father in terms of speaking out. You know, his father was brave, but I think, uh, um, you know, for Martin Luther King Jr., there was more of a climate of um, outspoken militancy. Um, I think that also he was influenced by other people who were in some ways more um, politically active than than he was, you know. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned Coretta, you know, as as a influence. I mean, she was very politically active by the time they met. Uh, she had been involved in, in protests against um, racism. Against, uh, you know, she was a pacifist uh, at a time of the Cold War, um, and she was a supporter of a, a third party movement and uh, the Progressive Party. Uh, you know, when when Bayard Rustin, who was one of the you know, most active um, black leaders of the of the 40s, uh, he came to Montgomery because Martin Luther King really had not studied in any serious way nonviolence. And Bayard Rustin was a very important influence on him um, during that period. Well, Coretta already knew Bayard Rustin. Uh, Martin didn't. Uh, so in, in some ways, she was, um, you know, the, the the notion that he dragged her into the movement, I think it, it might be they both pushed each other <laughs> yes. um, and in different ways. And, and certainly uh, she bared a lot of the risk, you know, it, when their home was bombed in, in Montgomery, she was the one at home with her newborn baby, but she was the one who insisted that he continue to. Uh, lead the boycott movement. So, uh, so I think we we should always remember her role, uh, even as we draw attention to his. Um, I've started uh, in the last few years of trying to commemorate her birthday as well as his, and I think we should, because I I, I think it's another way that she's the one who, who had a great impact on the legacy. I don't think there would be a King holiday um, without her efforts. Uh, through founding the King's Center in Atlanta. Totally agree with that, Dr. Carson, and the work to lift the voices of great women in this movement uh, certainly continues. And I know that the Miss, Mrs. Coretta Scott King um, was born on April 27, 1927. And absolutely, I totally agree with you that without her, her push and tenacity, we would not have gotten the King holiday. You know, we often say it takes teamwork to make the dream work. And what a team were the King, the entire King family, but certainly uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Mrs. Coretta Scott King. Dr. Claiborne Carson, thank you so much for 
uh, joining us on this and, and, and helping us to go a little deeper on the MLK Junior holiday. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. As Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. became more active in the struggle for civil rights, he came to embrace and practice the philosophy of nonviolence as a guiding principle of his leadership and his personal life. How did Reverend King come to learn of nonviolence as a tool to build a better and more just society in America? And why did he adhere to these principles, even as he and his family were plagued by death threats and violence? Here to answer those questions and more is Priyanka Kumar, a critically acclaimed novelist and the writer, director, and producer of the documentary Song of the Little Road. Priyanka, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Nina. So Priyanka, Dr. King wrote that nonviolence is the quote, guiding light of our movement. Christ furnished the spirit and motivation while Gandhi furnished the method, end quote. So let's start with Gandhi's work of nonviolent resistance. Give us a quick overview of Gandhi's work in the in defending human rights. Sure. Um, first of all, Nina, I think that's an incredible quote. I mean, consider what's going on here. Here's um, Dr. King, uh, a pastor, um, using uh, the name of Gandhi, a Hindu, in the same breath as, as Jesus Christ. Uh, something very powerful must have happened um, <clears throat> to um, cause Dr. King to say that. Uh, now, Gandhi uh, was a young lawyer in, the, uh, in around, I think it was 1893, when he first went to South Africa. And he was quite green and naive. And um, he was traveling first class uh, on a train at a time when, um, in quotes, colored people weren't allowed to do so. And so um, an inspector came in and asked him to travel at the back of the train in what was called a van compartment. And Gandhi showed his ticket and he refused to do so. And so um, they got a couple other guards in and threw him out of the train. And so um, I think that was the beginning of, of a journey that would really change uh, the history of uh, many countries, and it would reverberate through 20th century history. And so um, this was a time when Gandhi fortunately um, read a classic essay by uh, Thoreau. Um, so I, I love the story because, you know, it starts with America, it goes to India, and then it comes right back again to America. So he, he, reads, he reads what Thoreau is saying about civil disobedience, that if you don't support war and um, your government is at war, then maybe you should consider not paying taxes and let them throw you in jail if they want to. <laughs> so this was very interesting uh, for Gandhi. And um at the same time in South Africa, the, the Transvaal government was enacting uh, discriminat discriminatory laws against the Indian and the Chinese workers there. And so Gandhi was called upon to uh, lead a protest movement, and, and he was faced with a critical choice. Um, and he says this, 
you know, should I turn to violence or should I instead protest in a nonviolent way and let them, should I refuse to obey these discriminatory laws and let them throw us in jail if they want to? So he, he chooses, luckily for all of us, he chooses that second path. And at the same time, uh, uh, there's another great writer, one of my favorite writers, Leo Tolstoy, who is who has kind of given up novel writing at this point and is developing this philosophy of passive resistance, uh, asking people to tap into what he calls um, your soul force. And Gandhi reads um, uh, the work of Tolstoy and corresponds with him. And now this is the genius of Gandhi. He puts these two things together. So in the fire of experience, because Thoreau and um, Tolstoy were, you know, they were great writers, they were great philosophers, but they were philosophers. And here was Gandhi, who was really, he was uh, so-called, uh, he was trying out their ideas in the way that a scientist would. So he, in the fire of experience, he forges uh, what I like to call a gold coin. And on one side of that gold coin is nonviolence, and on the other side is love. So what Gandhi says is that in his dormant state, his movement is nonviolence. And here, this is what I think is his genius. It's in its active state, it is love. So the nonviolence is informed by love. And this is where Martin Luther King Jr. comes in. Of course, as a pastor, he's um, deeply uh, acquainted with um, the idea of Christian love. But not so much acquainted with nonviolence. Um, you know, this is uh, when uh, there was a time when he was at the Crozer sem Seminary. When he was, it was actually a confusing time in his intellectual development. He was reading a lot of writers. Um, and one of the writers he was reading was Nietzsche, who interestingly um, denigrates Christian morality. Uh, he glorifies the desire for power. And so even though Martin Luther King Jr. has heard about nonviolence, he doesn't know how it could possibly be a force that could be used in a movement. And uh, for both of these men, you know, as you explain what I would like to call Gandhi's awakening. And so his experience on the train was one level of awakening. His reading of great philosophers was another level of awakening. And he took what the, the theories and put them into practice. And I just, just, just hearing you tell this story, I'm seeing a layering and it's almost like a brick layer you know, laying the bricks on top of each other. The foundation has to be strong to be able to hold those bricks, but you're just layering on it. And then you have Dr. King, who is experiencing his own form of awakening and the universe, uh, those of us who are certainly leaning to a more spiritual side, that the universe brought these two men um, together spiritually. I mean, just that that's what I see in my mind's eye, just listening uh, to you tell the story. And you were starting to, because a, a, another thing, another question that I had was about 
you know, Dr. King uh, first beginning to learn of Gandhi's principles. And I think you were walking us into that door. Yeah. And, and thank you, Nina, for mentioning the layering, because I think you're right. Uh, these men are really standing on, on each other's shoulders. And I love that. Uh, these are some of my favorite figures in uh, history. So <laughs> thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about them. Um, but yeah, so at this kind of confusing time uh, in King's intellectual development when he was at the Crozer Seminary. Uh, he traveled to Philadelphia one day to hear a sermon by Dr. Johnson, who was the president of Howard University at the time. And it turns out that Dr. Johnson had just returned from India. And so he spoke about the work of Mahatma Gandhi. And um, so I'm going to quote this. In King's words, he, he found Gandhi's message, in quotes, so profound and electrifying that I left the meeting and bought a half dozen books on Gandhi's life and works. We'll have more with author Priyanka Kumar on the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. Author Priyanka Kumar returns to continue our conversation about Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. The, the fog of confusion lifts and suddenly King has this moment of clarity. Um, I mean, later uh, King wrote a, a couple of good quotes here. So if you don't mind, I'll quote again. Um, he says, Gandhi was probably the first person in history to lift the love ethic of Jesus above a mere interaction between individuals to a powerful and effective social force on a large scale. And then he adds, again, in quotes, Gandhi resisted evil with as much vigor and power as the violent resistor, but he resisted with love instead of hate. Yeah, it's that yin and that yang principle. Uh, you are, again, reminding me of a song that is sung in many a church, but love lifted me. When, when all else would fail, love lifted me. And that really was the message of, of, of both of these men, using love as a counterforce uh, to hate and injustice. Yeah, and you know, it, it lifted both these men and, um, you know, it lifted the civil rights movement. I mean, there, there, um, there are pivotal moments in the civil rights movement, especially in the beginning, when things could have taken a very different direction. Um, and, and, you know, one of my favorite stories about that is, um, so as you know, uh, in, it was in December 90, 1955 when Rosa Parks um, began the bus boycott movement in, in Montana. Montgomery and well, <laughs> um, it was not very popular with the city and with the, some of the white citizens of Montgomery. And so, what happens in January 1956? King's house was firebombed while his infant daughter Yolanda was sleeping inside. So Coretta calls her husband, and he rushes back home. Um, and he makes sure that his wife and daughter are unharmed. And then he goes outside and speaks to the distressed 
black supporters. And now these people were so upset about what had happened that they were willing to retaliate and they had the means to retaliate violently. But King told them not to do so. He said, if you have weapons, take them home. If you do not have them, please do not seek to get them. We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. Now imagine, imagine if King had let this crowd grow violent. Now we know that there were some civil, civil rights supporters in the 50s and the 60s who advocated freedom by any means necessary, including violence. We'll have more with author Priyanka Kumar on the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.